Hello, and thank you for joining Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. My name is Ashley Burrell. I'm the Secretary of the Board for Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security. We will be producing monthly podcasts featuring women of color in the peace and security field. So please visit WCAPS.org regularly for more details. Okay, I'd like to welcome all of you to another uh, podcast for the Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security, or WCAPS. I'm very happy to be able to uh, have a conversation today with Christine Ahn, who's doing some amazing work uh, trying to bring peace to the Korean Peninsula and bringing women of color and other women to the forefront to really be, you know, at the table and, and to really move decision-making uh, on issues of peace and security and conflict transformation. So it's a real honor for me to have Christine uh, here to talk with us. And she has a very busy schedule uh, doing all this amazing work. So we're really happy that she's able to spend some time with us uh, today. So Christine. Thanks so much. Oh, great. I'd, I'd love to start with you just saying a little bit more about uh, yourself, who you are, uh, and some of the, and we'll we'll do we'll start with that first, and then we'll get a little bit more into uh, the work that you're doing in your organization. Great, thanks so much for having me, Bonnie. Um, I'm the founder and international coordinator of Women Cross DMZ. We're a global movement of women mobilizing for peace on the Korean Peninsula. We were founded in 2015 when we organized a historic crossing of the demilitarized zone the most fortified border in the world. Um, obviously, everybody has seen those images of Panmunjom with the North and South Korean soldiers, armed soldiers facing off each other. Um, and, you know, there's 1.2 million landmines in that DMZ. And so it has been um, a site of division, a site of war. And so we crossed that and uh, we... 30 international women from 15 countries, many from countries that fought in the Korean War. That was from 1950 to 53. And uh, we, you know, we did it for Korean women who want an end to this war. They want a peace treaty um, signed between uh, the United States and North Korea and, you know, um, normalized relations between North Korea and South Korea. And so we did it, calling for this peace treaty, calling for the reunion of families, millions of uh, Koreans, North and South, and even Korean Americans remain separated from their loved ones in, in North Korea. And so we did that, calling for family reunions. And, you know, most importantly, I think it's women's leadership in, in the peace process. Um, so that's what we did. We held... Um, symposiums, um, women peace symposiums in Pyongyang with about 250 North Korean women. We had a peace symposium in Seoul with a similar amount and, you know, it was an opportunity to hear from both North and South Korean women about um, how the unresolved war is still impacting them today. And we were also able to share. We had sisters from Nobel Peace Laureates like Leima Gboe from Liberia and uh, Mairead McGuire from Northern Ireland, Patricia Guerrero, who is a human rights lawyer who created the City of Women in Colombia, uh, Suzuya Takazato, who started Okinawa Women Against Military Violence um, in Japan. 
um, you know, share also with North Korean women the power of women organizing to end conflict and to end violence in their communities. So uh, it was an inspiring trip. And since, and you know, not to mention, we marched with 10,000 Korean women on both sides of the DMZ in both Pyongyang and in Kaesong on the north side and in Paju on the south side. And, you know, I think we made a splash. We were definitely on the um, ticker, Times Square ticker tape uh, Gloria Steinem and uh, women across DMZ, across the DMZ, and the most trending issue on Facebook. And we got global coverage on CNN, New York Times. Um, and I think, you know, it really brought home, um, you know, there tends to be a misperception about the Korean War, and it's just a war between North Korea and South Korea. Well, you know, because of the systematic erasure of what happened in that brutal three-year war, people don't, especially Americans, don't realize this is a war that still needs to be ended between the U.S. and North Korea. So that's a little bit about uh, what we did in 2015. And since then, we've been continuing our work to educate, organize, and advocate for a peace treaty. And also, I mean, that's just amazing. And maybe you could also say a little bit about your background. What what led you to um, wanting to do all of this this work? Well, I uh, was born in South Korea, so I immigrated to this country when I was three, and I lived, you know, all over the United States. I actually went to high school in Langley, Virginia, where the CIA is, and so. Um, I'd say that that's probably where I got my kind of political um, edge is growing up with all these kids that whose parents were congressmen and Supreme Court justices. But, you know, I myself, you know, came from a working class immigrant family. And so I actually moved around quite a bit with my older sisters just because my parents were they were old, they didn't speak English, and um, it was rough and tumble. So I really grew up with that kind of working class immigrant paradigm, but then was thrust into this incredibly privileged setting with my oldest sister, who was uh, pretty successful as a businesswoman, and uh, living with her and her husband. And so I, um, I would say that, you know, both my kind of personal experience, I am the youngest of 10 children, um, nine girls and one boy really helped me, I think, um, learn to navigate working with women and um, be kind of a peace builder within my own family. So that's kind of the personal backdrop. And then, um, you know, I, I studied peace and conflict studies and political science when I was in college. And I actually um, did a lot of volunteering. I traveled to countries like Jamaica um, to Mexico, uh, really got kind of a critical education about uh, U.S. foreign policy, the role of the IMF and the World Bank um, in impacting, you know, developing countries. And so that was like a foundational education that I got. And then I um, actually spent some years Washington, working in Washington, D.C., where it's like the legal aid um, and uh, bread for the city in Zacchaeus Free Clinic. Um, and, you know, I, I was there at a time when um, Bill Clinton signed the um, welfare bill, which, you know, had uh, devastating consequences, especially for women of color. And, um, 
and so yeah i would say that you know i've always been kind of working uh looking critically both at like the u.s foreign policy and working at the intersection of how that impacts um domestic policy and even to like the various grassroots level um and then it really was uh, when i was a graduate student at Georgetown. I was in a course at the School of Foreign Service, and Bob Gallucci came to give a talk um, about the experience, his experience in the Oval Office when uh, the Clinton administration, the newly minted administration, almost went to war with North Korea, almost did a preemptive strike on the Yongbyon nuclear reactor. And I just, it just, you know, I had this, uh, oh my goodness, I'm Korean American and I know nothing about this history. And so um, I wrote a paper and I um, came across this NPR interview with a guy named Peter Hayes from the Nautilus Institute who won a MacArthur Genius Award because he did this incredible analysis where he found that uh, the famine in North Korea were up to a million North Korean people perished in a famine was due to an energy crisis. And I just found that analysis so fascinating. And um, I got a Ford, Founda Ford Foundation Fellowship to go work with him and the Nautilus Institute in Berkeley. And that uh, began my journey because while I was there, I met some extraordinary Korean Americans, many who uh, were from divided families, many who were part of the pro-democracy movement in South Korea. And I just, I, I'd say I kind of became a kind of a Gramscian public intellectual. I really learned on the ground, um, connected to social movements, going to South Korea, going to North Korea, um, and really just uh, kept studying and learning from people that have been in the struggle for peace and the reunification of Korea. And, you know, once I knew what I did, it, I felt I, I had a responsibility as a U.S. citizen uh, from a country that has had such a heavy hand on the Korean Peninsula. And that, uh, you know, that what happened there very much tied to our security here at home. So it's been an incredible journey. and. Um, most days it's been very hard. Um, some extraordinarily, um, you know, surreal things have happened to me while doing this work. Um, I mean, not to even mention crossing the DMZ and not, you know, sort of negotiating with uh, North Korea and South Korea um, and, you know, the UN command, which is really the US forces in Korea. So it's just, it's been uh, an extraordinarily amazing journey and you know doing it with a sisterhood of women is um has just been the best part and i i feel so lucky that i could do this meaningful work and try to make a contribution in my lifetime um that's great and, and some of the things that you're saying i mean i i it's great to hear um about how you got involved in it because there's so many stories that i hear from women of color about you know, their interest in issues of peace and security that were sparked sometimes by an individual, a mentor, um, and just kind of waking up a part of themselves that they, you know, it just put them in a whole different direction. And I guess that's true for people in general. Um, 
but there's some great stories out there um, similar to yours about how so many women of, of color have gotten interested in somebody's fields. And I happen to know Peter Hayes and um, I used to actually work at the Ford Foundation. So, um, you know, it's great hearing your stories. Uh, it actually brings back some, some of my own memories. <laughs> and, and also working with, with, with uh, Bob Gallucci as well. Um, so, you know, what were, I mean, I want to get back to some of the, you said some of the experiences were surreal. I want to get back to that, but um, what were some of the challenges that you faced when you, when you decided that you wanted to start um, your organization? Well, you know, it was, um, I mean, I had, you know, I'd say like my, my work, I mean, especially, you know, in my thirties after I, I left Georgetown and, and left, you know, the Nautilus Institute really kind of had two tracks. Like by day, I largely worked at um, women's organizations. I worked for many years as the International Peace and Solidarity uh, Director at the Women of Color Resource Center, uh, which was really started by Linda Burnham and Angela Davis and Miriam Ching Louie, a lot of women that had been part of this third world network. Um, really supporting, you know, liberation struggles in Africa and in the Americas and in South Asia. Um, and so uh, I did that for a few years. And then I, then I went to go work as the senior policy analyst at the Global Fund for Women, which is the largest women's fund supporting, you know, grassroots women's organizing in 170 countries. So that was kind of like my day job. But by moonlight, I was a Korea peace activist. So I actually started the Korea Policy Institute with a few other Korean American scholars. Really felt like, you know, I wasn't the PhD, but there were plenty of PhDs of Korean Americans that really needed to be organized. And so um, I helped create that think tank because I felt like, you know, this is about Korea. This is about the people. And um, who is giving that perspective? I mean, far too many white men are speaking about Korea without having any kind of connection um, to the people or to the history or to the land. Um, and so I really felt it was important to um, organize Korean Americans to do that. So that was the, I mean, I would say Women Cross TMZ and my, my doing this work was kind of the confluence of um, those two kind of areas of my life and my work. But it was really, it was in um, 2009, I was working at the Global Fund for Women and we had just launched a initiative called Women Dismantling Militarism. And we were raising money to support women in conflict zones. And we had just screened Abigail Disney's film Pray the Devil Back to Hell, about the extraordinary organizing by Liberian women crossing religious lines, Christian, Muslim, to end conflict and uh, to confront Charles Taylor. And I, um, I, that was so, um, it had such an impact on me that actually um, several nights after watching that film, I had woken up in the middle of the night and I turned on the computer and I read this New York Times article about uh, the Imjin River, which is in Korea, runs north to south. It's sort of through the heart of the Korean Peninsula. And these songs and poems have been written about it. You know, it's like birds can fly across the Imjin River, but why can't I see my loved one? 
And so it was flooding. And uh, Che Sung-hoon from the New York Times wrote this piece about how um, North Korea allegedly lifted the floodgates without informing South Korea. And the two leaders at the time was uh, Kim Jong-il, who is Kim Jong-un's father, and uh, Lee Myung-bak, the former CEO of Hyundai. And, um, and so what happened was, you know, it led to flooding in South Korea and um, several people were killed, including a father and his young son who were fishing early in the morning. And I just remember like reading that and just being both heartbroken and angry. And I went back to sleep and that's when I had this dream body. And the dream was that I was wading in the river and it was before the crack of dawn and um, I was with others. And I think it was because I was born in South Korea. My, most of my family are in South Korea and just being situated there, wondering if you know, they were gonna come and they being the North Koreans. And um, just as uh, the sun rose over the horizon, there was this glow of light that was flowing down the river and it was, it was people. And soon, you know, that kind of morphed into this um, incredible scene of family reunions. I'm sure all of your listeners must have seen at some point, you know, during the sunshine year, seeing elderly um, siblings from both North and South Korea who haven't seen each other for like 65 years, like embrace one another and, uh, you know, so it's just that powerful scene. But I don't know. It was like maybe because I'm in the diaspora, I um, I didn't want to just stop there. I wanted to know where the source of the light was coming from. And so I kept wading up the river. And that's when I came upon the source of the light, which was a circle of women. And they were stirring something in a big kettle. And whatever they were stirring, um, they poured into these vessels that then became the light that flowed down the river. And I woke up, it must have been like five in the morning, and I, I said to my husband, I know who will end the war. Women will end the Korean War. And of course, he looked at me totally befuddled and just said, you're crazy and go back to sleep. But, you know, it really... Um, it, you know, I, I ruminated on that for many years, and, and I said, I need to know what has been the history of North and South Korean women trying to connect across that most fortified border in the world. And so fortunately, I got this fellowship at the University of Michigan, where I was able to, through oral history, through interviews with women in South Korea um, about this history. And you know what I found was that the first meeting of North and South Korean women took place in 1991. And who was it organized by? A Japanese woman. And I just thought, oh my God, that is so powerful given the kind of colonial history of Japan occupying Korea for 35 years, uh, my parents having grown up in that period. And the role that, uh, a Japanese woman, like somebody outside of the peninsula could play. And so I really, um, I was inspired that uh, international women could do our part to help bridge the division, bridge the state of enmity and war between North and South Korea. And so um, then in like 2013, I 
I got this uh, flash in my email about a uh, five Kiwis who rode their motorbikes across the DMZ. And I just thought that is so like weird and <laughs> surreal. And if they could do it, women could do it. And so that was in 2013. And then um, I think it was in 2000. Yeah. So it was in 2013. And I, um, I wrote to Gloria Steinem, who I had met a few years before, and I said, Gloria, I wrote to her an email, and I said, if women could cross the DMZ um, in the service of peace, would you do it? And she wrote me, I think, literally in like three minutes, and she said, um, of course I would do it. I uh, was in high school during the Korean War, and I lost several classmates to that war. And I would do my small part to help with the healing. And, you know, that was just the response I got from so many women. Lema Gaboe, Abigail Disney, Medea Benjamin. Um, you know, Alice Walker actually, actually wanted to go on the, on the journey. And so it just coincided that the guy I had met on my first trip in 2004 to North Korea was a guy named Pak Chol, who had been appointed to work as a counselor in the DPRK mission to the UN. So it was just serendipity that I had known him. We had built a relationship when I was in North Korea, a very heartfelt one. And, uh, and so I wrote him an email and I said, this is a wild idea, but what do you think about women, many from the countries that participated in the war, crossing the DMZ, walking uh, for peace and for uh, the end of the war. And he wrote me back and he said, it's a crazy idea. And it's a brilliant idea. And you should go to Pyongyang to pitch it. And so that's, that's basically great. the beginning of this wild story. That, that's amazing that you, uh, you, uh, you know, you just sent an email and everybody was just so responsive. I mean, I think that's, that's really positive that there was so much energy and a desire to try something different and to support women and what women can do to make change to a very difficult situation. So, I mean, that's amazing. I, I know you must've been, see, getting those responses, you must've been, oh my goodness, <laughs> this is great. You know? Um, yeah. We're onto something powerful. Yes. Yes. And that people were recognizing what can be done, which I totally. Think so why don't we, um, uh, I want to get back to some of the things you said about the surreals. I, love, I, I like that you said that um, because I think there's a lot packed into that. So why don't we, why don't we fast forward to now and um, the situation that we have right now with <laughs> surreal. Yeah. <laughs> with so much going on with, with the, 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 the meetings between the meetings between leaders in the region, the upcoming summit, the back and forth with that, with, with the U.S. And, and North Korea, um, what? And I know you were were there recently. Um, talk a little bit about how this situation, how this um, the environment that we've seen in the past month or so. Um, how was that? How are you taking all of that in with your organization? How are you thinking about what opportunities that offers or what challenges that offers now? Well, I mean, it's just, it's been um, at a breakneck pace and, 
completely head spinning um, day to day. The summit is on, the summit is off. Um, and, you know, it's just been, it's been, it's been work to try to take it all in and um, try to be responsive and try to, um, you know, put in a historical perspective and try to bring in um, a woman's perspective, a gender perspective into this. Um, but, you know, I would first start by saying that we get so much misinformation about Korea and North Korea and South Korea, um, and that it's just so much work to basically even start with the basics, that there was a Korean War, that the U.S. led the U.N. command, um, which is not really the U.N., but it's like the first coalition of the willing. There were 24 countries that participated in the Korean War. Um, that, you know, it's more than just a civil war between North and South Korea. And so, you know, it's like you have to do all of that kind of basic education and then the kind of like dialing back a lot of the propaganda um, against North Korea. I mean, we've been at war with North Korea for 70 years. It's sort of like Cuba, you know, having um, vilified so much like the Castro regime and uh, the system. And while completely... Um, agree that North Korea and Cuba are, are very different. You know, it's also, it's, I mean, think about the Northeast Asia region, uh, what surrounds the Korean Peninsula, Japan, China, Russia. Um, and so, you know, that is probably like a tinderbox region. I mean, that's, you know, the greatest number of um, expenditures on the military is like definitely in that region and nuclear armed countries uh, Russia, China, uh, North Korea. So um, there's just so much work to kind of do that um, contextualizing. But, you know, what do I make of it? I think it's, um, it's a historic moment. And I credit um, significantly Moon Jae-in, the South Korean president. I credit the social movements, the candlelight revolution that swept him into power, that gave him a mandate to pursue a peace treaty with North Korea, to uh, be the kind of interlocutor between the US and North Korea, to kind of bridge the gap between the two sides. We know that North Korea, you know, their single focus is a peace treaty. They want to end the state of enmity and war with the United States. The US is single uh, focused on uh, denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. And so I think, you know, what South Korea and Moon Jae-in has been doing so um, masterfully is trying to say both need to go at the same time and uh, North Korea is not going to give up their nuclear weapons unless they have uh, security assurances that we won't conduct a first strike against them and um, and you know the U.S. won't pursue a peace treaty unless they know for sure that North Korea is in a process of denuclearization so um I think it's an extraordinary moment. And I feel um, sometimes my greatest challenge is among my progressive allies and among my liberal friends who um, are usually on the side of peace, but because they so uh, dislike and detest Donald Trump, which I completely agree, we shouldn't um, miss this historic moment that this is a 70 year conflict that uh, Korea was the beginning of the Cold War, and not just in terms of McCarthyism and the kind of anti-communist rhetoric, but in terms of the military-industrial complex. You know, 
um, that ushered in like massive military spending and the proliferation of U.S. bases. So how uh, how could we um, put an end to this conflict that could have this incredible domino effect, not just for peace in the region, potentially uh, achieving a nuclear free zone in Northeast Asia? Um, I just think that you know peace on the peninsula has huge implications and possibilities for world peace. And you know, so it's um, it's a little dizzying to um, be, for example, on the AM Joy show this morning and having, you know, somebody like David Korn, who is from uh, Mother Jones, a progressive uh, magazine, you know, basically poo-poo the whole, the situation with Trump because, you know, we, we so mistrust Donald Trump. But um, it's, you know, I bring it back to, this is about the Korean people. This is about what uh, South Korea and our major U.S. ally wants is an end to the war. We know that North and South Korea, Kim Jong-un and Moon Jae-in on April 27th met at Panmunjom. They declared an end to this war and a new era of peace. So, you know, that, that, that peace train has left the station. And I, I think, you know, it's, it's really a, a great day that the U.S. is actually, like as Donald Trump put it yesterday in his press conference, you know, we are talking about ending a 70-year conflict. That should not be, um, you know, I mean, I understand we don't need to go into the situation with rose-colored lenses, but let's also um, take in the significance of what that means. Great. And um, I like that you also um, shed some light on the role of South Korea. Um, I think we get so tied up into the discussions of how much of a role Trump did or didn't have in all of this that we sometimes don't credit enough, I think, the role of South Korea and the mandate that um, that they had, uh, you know, that Moon had to do what he's been doing. So I'm glad that you raised that point as well and that um, folks can hear that, that, that side of what's going on. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, just to add to that, Bonnie, it's like we often hear so much in the media that it's North Korea that's driving a wedge between the U.S. and ROK. And it's like, you know, what happened last year? But a ton of fire and fury, you know. I mean, of course, North Korea tested like over 20 missiles and a nuclear weapon. You know, they're really like quickly trying to achieve an effective deterrence against a U.S. first strike. So, you know, and Donald Trump. I mean, you know, when he first went to Asia in November, I, you know, I, I always bring up this point, which is there was a Pew study that found that three out of four South Koreans said they feared Donald Trump more than they did Kim Jong-un. So, you know, the only wedge that was really being driven that really forced South Korea to actually stand up to the U.S., because when North Korea conducted that long-range missile in November, Moon Jae-in said he condemned North Korea for doing that for its provocative belligerence, but he also sent a message to Donald Trump and to the U.S. and said, there won't be a war as long as I am president, you know, because it would have devastating consequences, not just for North Korea, but the counter-retaliation on South Korea. The Congressional Research Service said that in the first few hours, of a conventional conflict, 300,000 people would be killed. So, you know, the Korean people uh, don't take that lightly. And, you know, I think 
I think Trump pushed a little too hard, you know, the whole bloody no strike thing, um, you know, and that's why Moon has such popularity right now, why 85% of South Koreans have his back and say what you're doing in terms of engagement and diplomacy with North Korea is the right thing. So, you know, let's, um, let's not forget, you know, the kind of really provocative actions that took place last year and how much, you know, our government has took a lot of responsibility for escalating tensions on the Korean Peninsula. Great, I think, and, and, and that's a great perspective because I think most people are saying, I mean, those who want to promote a certain viewpoint like to say, well, it's that escalation that led to the talks. Um, but there's another side of the coin as well um, to look at. Mm-hmm. And it's great that yep. you're bringing up. Um, so just briefly, uh, going back to your, some of the challenges you, you, you said the, that you mentioned um, and the surreal moments, is, is this, I guess, would be, is this, would this time right now be a, a surreal moment or um, what have some of those been? I can only imagine. <laughs> it's been so crazy. Um, <laughs> Well, I mean, just most recently, I mean, we were in South Korea last week, uh, Women Cross DMZ and the Nobel Women's Initiative organized a delegation of 30 women to go to South Korea. We wanted to cross the DMZ, but North Korea said, please, can you just postpone it until after the summit? And the South Korean women said, no, we really, you know, May 24th, International Women's Day for Peace and Disarmament is an important time for us to gather. And so we made the decision. It's, you know, South Korea and Moon Jae-in is the country we need to support right now. And so we all gathered in South, in Seoul and we did a women's DMZ peace walk um, on the southern um, side of the DMZ. But I would say that uh, it was pretty surreal to um, have just finished a all-women's symposium at the National Assembly in Seoul, which is, you know, their U.S. Congress. And, uh, and to, you know, basically be planning a meeting the next morning with the U.S. Embassy in Seoul to talk about, you know, the need for um, uh, this historic summit to take place and to support the Korea peace process. And, you know, at 1130 that night to get a phone call from one of the South Korean sisters whose father used to be um, uh, the Minister of Unification under Kim Dae-jung, you know, who really was the forefront of the sunshine policy. And to say, oh my God, Moon Jae-in just flew back to South Korea after meeting with Trump. And Trump uh, wrote a letter to Kim Jong-un canceling the summit <laughs> with a, in a breakup letter. And, um, and then, you know, to basically go to the embassy meeting the next morning uh, and have a really hard-nosed but a constructive dialogue with them. Uh, And it was really, I mean, it was kind of amusing because here we were, we were a delegation of 12 women, you know, and sisters that came from um, Guam, um, sisters, you know, that, uh, you know, are like from Hawaii, you know, the false missile alert, you know, who would be in the crosshairs of any kind of conflict between the U.S. and North Korea you know, all sitting around a table together. And they had four um, men (laughs) at the U.S. Embassy. There was the Charge d'Affaires, and there were three white guys and one Korean-American guy. And, you know, 
it was tense because they also didn't get wind of uh, Donald Trump doing this un until they got a phone call from um, from the brew house. Wow. And so, you know, it was like tense and, you know, it was great to be saying, look, I think we are all feeling very tense given what just happened, but we're here to dialogue with you. We are here, here to build a relationship with you. Uh, we want to explore with you how uh, the peace process can ba get back on track and how women can help um, support it in the service of peace. And, you know, just by just saying, you know, you and I, we, we clearly have differences of opinions, but we believe in dialogue um, was, I think, a, it was a real icebreaker. And you can just feel like everybody kind of breathing a sigh of relief. And then we can have dialogue. And, um, and I think it was really constructive. And so anyway, it was just hilarious because after having that little did they know we had planned a protest outside of the U.S. Embassy. <laughs> and so we did that. And then, you know, later that evening, Canada and Norway co-hosted a reception for us. And so we had to see the U.S. Embassy guy again at that reception. So, right. you know, it was a little surreal that way. But, um, you know, this is what we have to do. I think women have to, uh, women peacemakers and builders, we have to maintain, like, true to our principles and our integrity. Um, but we have to maintain that firm commitment to dialogue um, and be the bridge. And, you know, um, we don't have, luckily, because of the way that we've, grown up, you know, with all these like gender binaries and all the kind of various responsibilities that women have to do as caretakers of the home, of our communities, of our families, um, that we um, don't have that kind of masculine um, posturing that we need to do to like prove a point or something. Um, but that we really, you know, that I think there is something very disarming about women and um and a trust that we really are trying to do this to advance something that's in the greater good. So, uh, yeah, it was kind of surreal to ha have that day. Um, and then, of course, the next day, you know, marching with 1,200 women in the South Korean side of the DMZ to know that just uh, a few miles away that Moon Jae-in and, and Kim Jong-un were meeting at Pabun Jam. Um, to try to get the U.S. North Korea talks back on track. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, but there's so many more stories. I need to write a book, Bonnie. Yes, <laughs> I, can, I can only imagine how many how many stories you have um, in your journeys. Um, so this is. Great. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, one thing I wanted to do as as we get toward the end is, uh, and 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 we were talking earlier. Um, you know, one of the goals, major goal of of WCAPS is to strengthen the voices of women of color in peace, security, and conflict issues, um, and also to make sure that um, we're, you know, we're part of decision-making, uh, that we can have a role in influencing peace and security uh, moving forward. And you are doing exactly that. And, you know, you're, you, you are, you know, bringing in women as well as women of color into this important issue, important security issue, important peace issue and conflict issue. And um, I find that great that, you know, I can point to you and other women of color who are really in the forefront and, you know, making things happen. So that's really wonderful for me because it helps me feel 
very happy to see that happening and it's such an important part of what I'm trying to do with my organization. Um, and as you have gone through these journeys, I wonder, you know, if you were sitting and, and you may have done this many times already, sitting, you know, talking to a group of young women, uh, particularly women of color, um, let's say they're high schoolers, um, what would you, what would be your message to them about um, playing a role in, in peace and security in the future and, you know, overcoming the challenges that they may have in doing that, um, in doing that in their careers? Well, first I salute you for starting WCAPS and um, I, I, I feel that you are in the front, you know, frontier in pioneering a very important uh, organization that really brings more women of color into this field. Um, I would say to these young, bright, brilliant young women that um, they are who we, we are waiting for. Um, that, uh, you know, this country um, has, uh, has both a beautiful history in terms of its diversity, in terms of its embracing different cultures and religions. Um, and yet uh, it also has a very uh, tragic history of uh, occupying other countries, so sovereign countries, um, a history of genocide of African-Americans, of Native Americans, and that um, you know, there still needs to be reckoning about what is the spirit of the United States of America and that uh, we are on the verge of being a nation of um, at least half uh, people of color. And that includes um, African-Americans, it includes Latin Americans, it includes Asian Americans, Native Americans, it includes a nation of, of immigrants that were um, forcefully brought here um, or you know, willingly came here to advance their, um, the economic well-being of their families. And so um, we have to shape a different kind of foreign policy that uh, isn't the kind of, um, the brutal one that has uh, impacted our homelands um, and that can, you know, be um, a true alliance of people. Um, and that uh, so much of what uh, a just foreign policy can do is not just in terms of how the U.S. can be perceived around the world, but also it improves our security at home. And we know in terms of uh, the domestic demographics who are the most uh, disproportionately impacted in terms of uh, jobs, in terms of uh, income and wealth inequality in this country. You know, women of color are always um, at the bottom of that barrel. And, um, you know, foreign policy and international relations has been far too long the domain of white men and the, the kind of the way in which um, kind of patriarchy has uh, been used and the kind of the intersection of of patriarchy and sexism and racism um, has really defined kind of a U.S. foreign policy agenda. And that, you know, we have seen 
in the last few years, the rise of women's power through the form of women's marches, through the Me Too movement, and we have a job to do to take on perhaps the most patriarchal um, area. And that, you know, we have to do it in a way that is um, true to what we stand for and who we are. And um, that we don't have to take on that kind of masculine armor to be in this field because we don't want to become like them. We actually want to be who we are and to advance our vision for a world that's more just, more equal. Um, and that, you know, we're, we are all liberated. And so um, I would say, you know, you are who we are waiting for. We need you to get into this field because how we shape U.S. foreign policy will always dictate whether how much we will spend on our military spending, um, which is $700 billion, which is more than the next 10 countries combined. And, you know, if we continue at that pace, we will never achieve true uh, security at home and uh, invest in the things that we know will give us security at home in our families and in our communities. And so we need you to get to work now to try to transform what the United States of America could be at home and, and to the broader world. That's great. And I like, I like how you said um, you need to get to work now because it's interesting as we see, you know, after the Parkland shootings, for example, how active uh, our younger generation is already. And it's really inspiring. Um, and so I think, you know, saying, you know, and letting them know that they can play a role now, uh, even at their, even at their young age to, to get involved and um, to feel like they have a role to play, I think is really, really important. So um, thank you for that. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, our young people will actually continue to do that. Um, but I think, I mean, but, you know, it, you know, I don't, I, your work is so great, and um, I'm also glad that you are our Woman of the Month for June for WCAPS. Um, and you know, we couldn't be more honored to have you, um, you know, part of this uh, group. And you know, as I said, you are out there doing the things that that this organization is trying to promote. So thank you for that. Um, and I guess any last words that you might have on on this important work and and what you've achieved uh, so far in, in this work and with trying to bring peace, peace to the uh, Korean Peninsula? No, I just, I feel so deeply honored, Bonnie, to be recognized by your organization. And I feel so deeply grateful that you have started this important organization that really um, kind of creates a sisterhood for women of color that um, are trying to do this work because it is tough. It is tough to be in this field where um, you know, it's hard to be taken seriously because of, you know, the, the perception of who is the expert, right, on security issues. And so um, I just want to thank you for um, taking your leadership and doing, you know, and creating such an important organization for women of color and to, you know, create a community for those of us that are working together to advance a more just and, and peaceful and secure world. So that's all I have to say. Just, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to share some of my stories today. 
Well, thank you for taking the time because I know how busy you are. As I said, I know that um, you you know your work that you're doing uh, for the uh, for the Peace Peninsula, but also I seeing you on TV now, and and uh, it's great that people are recognizing your work. It's great that you're able to let folks know. Um, not only what you're doing, but the important role that women can play in peace, security, and conflict transformation. Um, so uh, keep up the good work, and we're watching and, and learning and um, being inspired. So thank you very much. And uh, I want to thank everyone who uh, took the time to listen today. I think it was a, an excellent uh, interview here because uh, we have an excellent person who's talking about her work, which is really uh, moving uh, things in the right direction for all of us. So thank you again, Christine. Thank you, uh, all the listeners. And we'll be back again with another podcast soon. Thank you, Bonnie. Thank you for joining Women of Color, Advancing Peace and Security. Please visit WCAPS.org. That's W-C-A-P-S dot org.